Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 32. I bet you've heard of Messina Hoff, one of the largest wineries in Texas with four locations across the state. But how much do you really know about Messina Hoff? My interview with Paul and Karen Bonarigo provides a glimpse behind the scenes of a family business with a rich tradition and bold goals for the future. First, I'll give a rundown on how Texas wineries are showing up in the news. I've got a cool wine industry job to share, news of a winery that may be haunted, and results from recent wine competitions. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Today's Texas Wine News segment is sponsored by Texas Fine Wine, which includes Bending Branch Winery, Dukeman Family Winery, Pedernalis Cellars, and Spicewood Vineyards. Don't miss the special four-bottle holiday wine bundle. Don't miss their special four-bottle holiday wine bundle. Go to texasfinewine.com for details. Two major Texas wine competitions announced medal results since my last podcast. The first is the 13th annual San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo Wine Competition. It was held from October 4th to 6th. There were over 900 entries and over 300 wineries from around the world submitted wine, and over 50 of those wineries were from Texas. The Texas champion wines were, for Best of Herd Texas Winery, Paternalis Cellars. The best of show for Texas red wine was the 2018 Bingham Family Vineyards Dugout from the Texas High Plains. The best of show Texas white wine was the 2018 McPherson Cellars IFB, which is their Italian field blend. And finally, the best of show Texas rosé wine was the 2020 Sandy Road Vineyards GSM rosé from the Texas Hill Country. These wines will be featured in the Wine Garden during the 73rd Annual San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo in February. The Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association also released the results from their 38th Annual Lone Star International Wine Competition. That took place earlier this month in Grapevine, and I helped judge. The competition is the oldest wine competition in the state of Texas. There were over 800 wine entries from 115 wine companies. We judged wine in a number of different categories, and full results are available on the Twigga website or on the Texas Wine Lover website. Texas wineries brought home seven Grand Star Awards. English Newsome for the 2018 Flirt, Georgetown Winery for Funky Monkey Pineapple, Grape Creek Vineyards Port from Triga Nacional, the Llano Estacado 2020 Cellar Reserve Tempranillo, which was bourbon barrel aged, the Messina Hoff Wineries 2019 Gewurztraminer Private Reserve, and you'll hear Karen Bonarigo talk about that wine during our interview segment. The Ready Vineyards 2020 Texas Lush, which is semi-sweet. And finally, the Threshold Vineyards 2020 Blanc de Bois, which is semi-dry. Texas Wineries also brought home 24 Best in Category Awards. I'll link to the full list in the show notes, but here are a few that were notable. The Best in Texas Red for Sangiovese went to Dove Ridge Wineries 2019 Sangio. 
I've had my eye on this winery since the Texom Awards came out because the Dove Ridge Winery's Cabernet Sauvignon also did very well in that competition. And that was a winery that I wasn't familiar with. The grapes were grown in Parker County, which is on the west side of Fort Worth and includes Weatherford, Texas. English Newsome won three best-in-class awards for their 2019 Reserve Viognier, the 2018 Flirt, which is a rosé, and the 2018 Estate Malbec. Ready Vineyards won for best-in-class Cabernet Sauvignon for their 2019 Reserve Cab, and Ready also won for their 2020 Texas Lush Dessert Wine. Sandy Road Vineyards won for best Morvedra for their 2018 Morvedra, and Wedding Oak won in the international competition for Proprietary Red for their 2019 Tioja. That's a Spanish Rioja-style blend using hill country fruit. It's about 80% Tempranillo with the remainder Carignan, Grenache, Graciano, and Morved. There are many other winners, too many to mention them all, but check out the links in the show notes. Congratulations to all the winners. Ready Vineyards is seeking multiple brand ambassadors in key markets throughout Texas, including DFW, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio, and Lubbock. The brand ambassador is designed to be an integral part of the sales and distribution strategy within the market, and they will represent Ready Vineyards wines within local retail and restaurant partners, as well as at local events. You need to be available Friday evenings, Saturdays, and Sundays, but no prior wine knowledge is required. This is a common way that wine regions and brands extend their market presence. This is the first brand ambassador position that I recall seeing for a Texas winery. There's a new wine that sure sounds interesting. It's the 2017 Riven Yates, and it's just been released by Kerrville Hills Winery. It's a wine made by John Rivenberg of Kerrville Hills Winery and Ron Yates of Spicewood Vineyards and Ron Yates Winery. John Rivenberg is serious about Tanat, and Ron Yates is a Tempranillo fanatic. So leave it to these two to make a blend of Tanat and Tempranillo and give it a name that combines their last names. Riven Yates is said to be a wine based in friendship. The grapes are from the Texas High Plains, and it's that wonderful 2017 vintage. It looks like it's a winery-only option, or at least it doesn't show that it can be shipped. Way back in 2016, John Rivenberg told Texas Wine Lover website that he and Ron Yates would be collaborating on a line of wines known as Riven Yates Productions, so perhaps this is the first of many. Such a fun collaboration between two huge personalities in the Texas wine industry. William Chris Vineyards was included in an article by TheManual.com. It's called Five Haunted Wineries Worth a Spine-Tingling Visit. Apparently, William Chris is quite spooky. The author says it's the little things that can make a place feel frightful. For example, the marbles people apparently find in random spots on the estate with no clue as to how they got there. I suppose it all makes sense when your winery lies adjacent to a cemetery. He says the wine is excellent, the Rhone varietals especially, by the way, but paranormal readings and its haunted history tend to tick a bit on this beautiful stop on Highway 290. I mentioned the Texas Fine Wine Bundle at the top of this segment. I want to give a little bit more background on this bundle. It's great because you can get wines from four different wineries, and then you can log into the virtual tasting with the winemakers and winery representatives 
To hear more about the wine, the holiday pairings, the 2021 vintage, and generally get your questions answered. This particular bundle includes the Dukeman Family Winery 2020 Roussan, the Paternalis Cellars 2018 Tempranillo Reserve, Spicewood Vineyards 2018 The Independence, which is a Cab Merlot blend, and finally Bending Branch Winery's 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon from Newsom Vineyards. The virtual tasting is scheduled for November 11th at 6 o'clock on Zoom. So order soon so that you can participate in that. And you can actually order any time before November 10th to get the wine by Thanksgiving. The price is $125 plus tax, and that includes shipping. I'll be on that Zoom call on November 11th, and I hope to see you there. And that's the Texas Wine News. My newsletter subscribers get to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of putting out a Texas wine podcast and also get some fun freebies. In the past, these have included a Texas wine quiz, a list of my favorite wines, and most recently, a Texas wine crossword puzzle. Have you figured out the answer to 30 across? Here's the clue. North Texas winery that is named for a flightless bird. The answer, of course, is blue ostrich. The newsletter includes my latest wine experiences and some of my favorite wines that I don't have time to talk about on the show. To get in on the fun, please sign up for the podcast newsletter on the website at thisistexaswine.com. Then click Newsletter Sign Up. My guests today are Paul M. Bonarigo, winemaker at Messina Hoff Winery, and his wife, Karen Bonarigo, who's the chief administrative officer. Paul is the son of Messina Hoff founders Paul Vincent and Meryl Bonarigo. The book that I referred to in the interview is called Family, Tradition, and Romance, The Messina Hoff Story. It was sent to me by Paul Vincent and Meryl Bonarigo. It's worth your time if you're a fan of Texas wine history. Here's our interview. Thank you for being with me today, Paul and Karen. This interview is going to be primarily about Messina Hoff and your roles there and the current situation and everything you have going on, but we can't really just jump in from the now. We really need to go back in time and talk about some of the history of Messina Hoff and Paul, your family's founding of the winery. Do you want to just give us a rundown of Messina Hoff's founding from the start? Happy to. So actually going back even further than our founding, you know, the Bonarigo family has been making wine since uh, Messina, Sicily. So that's been going on for many generations, um, which is the part of the story that that's important for Texas is that was that spark that kind of, as my dad was a physical therapist um, and his journey eventually landed him in Bryan, Texas, it was because of a conversation he had with a gentleman by the name of Ron Perry doing a great feasibility study with Texas A&M and the fact that my dad shared with him this tradition that Ron asked him to plant an experimental vineyard in partnership to try to, to study what grapes would grow well in Texas. So that was, so really Messina Hoff here in Texas uh, started because uh, an experimental vineyard was planted. So that was in 1977. And from that experimental vineyard, they determined what varieties would grow well here. And uh, shortly thereafter, started producing wine, both from that vineyard as well as from a few other vineyards throughout the state. And um, by 1983, had turned into a full com- commercial winery. Before that point, they were making more of like hobby-style wines. Uh, they did enter a few 
amateur competitions like the state fair and so forth and had success with that. But that really kicked off that passion for this state can really produce great quality fruit. And we think that there can be an incredible Texas wine industry. And so they just invested their life in it. And so from 1977 through uh, the 1990s, it was really a uh, kind of that early pioneer phase, just trying to showcase and determine what, what varieties would grow best where and, and what would make good wine and, and trying to convince people that Texas wine was, was something that should be supported and, and pushed and grown. Um, you start to see a little bit of Texas wineries come up during that period, but the 90s was really when we started seeing uh, a lot of popular support. Uh, organizations throughout the state started supporting Texas wine much more aggressively. A lot more wineries came online and all that time. Messina was growing, focusing a lot on hospitality, on creating destinations for people to be able to come. My parents learned very early on that it was a lot more than just about the wine. It was about the experience, um, being able to let people come and, and have wine, food together, do events, uh, create a destination. And so that's why we have the restaurant here, the bed and breakfast here. Uh, we do events and things like that. And that continued to grow. Um, and of course, my piece in that story, uh, I grew up doing it from literally being a baby in the vineyard. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I, after high school, uh, went off to the Naval Academy in, in Maryland. And while I was there, that's where I met Karen. And uh, she was going to school in, in uh, George Washington. And I, we came back and so I, then I commissioned in the Marine Corps, uh, served in the Marine Corps until 2010, active duty. And then we came back and started the transition to uh, to kind of our next big phase. And so since 2010, the story of Messina has been a little bit different because we focused very heavily on regional presence. Um, so we opened up our location in Hill Country in 2011 in, uh, in Grapevine in 2014. And then we opened a location down in Houston area uh, this last year or this year. And that is heavily driven from... Uh, the desire to connect with consumers and educate on Texas wine, give experiences. And, and so, uh, which kind of plays back to the same vision that my parents had, but just taking it to a much larger scale now. Yes. I have an infographic that I got off of your website that's from 2018. And it talks about how in 1983 you produced 550 cases of wine annually. So like you said, <laughs> yeah. quite, quite small. But then in 2018, it's, it's listed in gallons, but 200,000 gallons in 2018. And I, I imagine that it's gone up since then. How does that even translate into case production? So the reason why we normally look at gallons, so like in 2019, for example, that's been our largest year. That was 220,000 gallons we produced that year. Um, we bottle about 60,000 cases under our brand. Um but a lot of our mission recently has been, if you look at, you know, the High Plains is by far the largest concentration of planting. Uh, there's a lot of wineries on the east side of Texas that really are challenged with having access to Texas fruit and Texas juice. Um, so a big piece of our mission has been to try to help them to have supply. So we produce 220,000 gallons, about 60,000 cases of that goes into our label. And then, um, and then we've done bulk sale and custom projects for other wineries. Oh, I see. Interesting. Well, and it seems like Messina Hof is one of the most widely distributed 
wines. It's available in, in all the store, grocery stores, liquor stores, and in many restaurants. It so, is a blessing, yes. Yes. I wonder, um, this is probably a question I should ask at the end, but are, are you satisfied with your placement in restaurants and stores or what's next? Do you want, do you want more and bigger or uh, are you honing in on a certain aspect that you want to um, focus on for the growth of Messina Hall? I've been known to give more complicated answers than you're wanting. <laughs> That's okay. That's kinda... I tell you, my listeners like the, the details sometimes. You know, when when I came back in 2010, I think that um, the a lot of the growth, being at the estate here in Bryan College Station, we have a very, we have a great community here. They're very supportive. Um, and there's a decent amount of tourism that comes, especially during football season at Texas A&M. Obviously, that, that is helpful. But um, there's not a huge uh, concentration of wineries around us. And so up to that point, uh, Messina Hop was actually about 75% of our volume was through wholesale sales. Um, and, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. The, the, great, the greatest blessing that we see through that is more the ability to connect with customers and share that Texas wine. Because, you know, at the end, my, my goal is, like, I would love to see 97% of the wine sold in Texas is from a Texas winery and 3% is from California, not the other way around. Right. Um, so every drop of Texas wine that can be sold is a victory to me. So I think that that's that's great. However, um, there's a lot of challenges with being able to, you know, we make 85 wines. So of the 85 wines, only there's like not even 30 of them that are sold in the broad market. And so those other wines require that customer connection to be able to both sell them and educate people. You know, so. Part of what Karen and I immediately focused on was we need to try to, to flip this. We need to try to build our direct-to-consumer business um, while at the same time being able to at least somewhat maintain momentum on the wholesale side. And that, I, we've done that. So we're actually, at this point, more than 75% sold through direct-to-consumer and uh, only about 25% through uh, wholesale. Which, which is more where we want it to be. And so at this point, we do have growth goals. Right? We do want to grow. Um, a lot of our focus over the course of the next probably five years is more enhancing the programs that we have. Of course, um, you know, we just opened our location down in Houston, and a lot of that is food-based. So um, since COVID kicked uh, last year, we have it, it's given us an opportunity to take a step back and modify our programs to be uh, more holistic food and wine together uh, at all locations, and we want to continue to build on build on that. So we have some 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 unique programs we want to put into place. So at this point, it's more about improvement on the on the current things that we have, um, and moderate growth uh, than it is just trying to grow, grow, grow. Mm -hmm. Well, Karen, I want to turn my next question your way. As the chief administrative officer, I imagine it's quite a challenge to have four different locations across the state. So you've got Grapevine, Bryan, Richmond, and Fredericksburg. And I would like for you to say a few words about your newest location in Richmond, which I hear is just always packed and so fun. I haven't made it down there yet. 
the new location, Messinahoff Harvest Green Winery and Kitchen. Uh, we're very excited about it being able to join the clan here at Messinahoff. And so um, it really was, it's a larger project than we've ever really executed before. We built this location from the ground up. It's on five and a half acres. Um, there's a vineyard that we're already caring for on the property. And then we'll have a vineyard also be planted on our side of the property. Uh, and we really wanted to be able to highlight not only all the wines, but really all the innovation that you can have with wine, uh, especially in the past 10 years. So we've been doing wine on tap uh, at the winery in Bryan since 2013. Paul kind of prototyped it in our wine bar and we fell in love with it. And so we've been doing tap programs and growlers and things like that. And those have slowly expanded into all the locations. Uh, Grapevine had the largest setup um, at the time, um, but it was still somewhat rudimentary. And so when we opened up Harvest Green, we wanted that to be kind of a focal point feature. So there's a huge tap system that's right in the middle of the ginormous bar that we have. Uh, and then we also wanted to be able to really focus on the food element because the Vintage House restaurant here at the estate, we opened in uh, 1995. And Meryl Monterigo, uh, my mother-in-law, Paul's mom, uh, she has always had a love for food. And so food has weaved its way into the educational programs um, since the 80s and 90s when we were doing events. Um, and especially when the restaurant opened, it in fact, opened as a teaching kitchen and a cooking uh, kind of cooking party uh, opportunity. And uh, after that, then it ended up turning into kind of more of an a la carte restaurant. And then... Um, we wanted to be able to expand that further when we did the Harvest Green project to be able to make sure that uh, we took things to the next level. And so there's a massive kitchen, a full restaurant kitchen at Harvest Green. Um, we have a full menu that we're operating on certain days and things like that. And the goal was to really be able to explore um, the combination of food and wine and kind of in every experience that you have at a winery. Um, we have the advantage of being able to um, experiment with a lot of local ingredients and we're featuring things from the farm that's there um, on that's very close to the property. So Harvest Green is a master planned community um, built by Johnson Development. Um, they do a fabulous job with their properties and um, Harvest Green, its unique feature uh, as a neighborhood is the farm that is in the middle of the neighborhood. So instead of a golf course, um, they have a giant farm. And so they do uh, a farmer's market. They have uh, kind of cooking and food clubs and wine clubs. They have a, a farm club where you can um, be part of having kind of a 10 by 10 plot. And then you can use all the supplies for the farm uh, and they have a great time doing that. They also have a CSA program and each of the houses has either a fruit tree or a garden in the backyard when they buy the house. And so, uh, and they're always looking to be able to develop um, new and unique uh, vegetables and fruits and herbs and things like that. And they're very focused on education. So it was a great partnership for us to be able to um, combine with them to be able to really utilize and feature those those elements and bring that front of mind for everyone's everyday life. Uh, wine is every day for us. Uh, it's what we do. We live and breathe it as a family business. Uh, but at the same time, we enjoy it every day just as a family. Uh, and we have a lot of memories and, and special moments that happen both at dinner tables and celebrations and things like that. So we want people to feel comfortable with wine. We want them to feel comfortable pairing them in different ways and exper experimenting and exploring new varietals. And so the restaurant element allows us to be able to kind of guide them through that face-to-face, um, -face, and then hopefully they go off and, you know, explore all their cookbooks in a new new way that they hadn't done before.
Well, wine around the table is just the way wine is intended to be shared, if you ask me. So, and that's so Italian, isn't it? Right. It's well that, and that's our families is is very much that. So, uh, we show all of our emotions through food. <laughs> yes, I read uh, in in the book how the name Messina Hof came to be. In case people aren't familiar with that, can you share what the the significance of Messina and Hof? Well, Paul, do you want to kind of tell that since it's your story? Sure. <laughs> so. When my parents were first starting to establish the winery and looking at what they wanted to name it, at the same time, there was a show on called Roots. And um, the theme or the idea was to, to honor your family heritage, where you came from, your family heritage. And so my father's side comes from a little village in the Messina region of Sicily called Locterio He came from, uh, my grandfather immigrated from Messina to New York. Uh, and so my dad grew up in New York. My mom's side uh, immigrated from Hof, Germany. And um, her family's been in the United States now, actually, since the Revolutionary War. So much longer heritage in the United States. Um, but, but they wanted to combine those two family heritage. So they called it Messinahof. That's lovely. I've never been to either place, but Sicily is high on my list. I know, I know Paul, that your dad did three terms as president of the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association, which I'm not sure if that's a record, but perhaps. And then you have also just completed a term in the past uh, year or two, a couple years ago. I'm sure you've had more conversations about labeling laws than you ever cared to relive. (laughs) Uh, But finally this year, Texas passed some compromise legislation that is a little, it tightens up the regulations in using uh, vineyard designates, county designates, and ABA designates to making those 100% Texas wine. Now that you're past past president, do you have any comments about that? Now, the biggest thing, you know, look at, if you look at Messina Hoff's history, for our first 15 years of running, we were, we were able to be 100% Texas. And my parents have bled for Texas wine. They, they love Texas wine. And, you know, kind of one of those, uh, I guess, blessings of growth, but challenges at the same time, uh, the wineries outpaced the vineyards. And so they did go through a time where they did have to source some from out of the state, but always focusing on, on Texas first and, and as much as they could possibly get. And so we, we, of course, um, were, were, uh, it was a great thing, um, in the early, uh, like the 2000, 2011-2012 period, uh, a huge amount of vineyards were being planted, especially Lehe Vineyards, which is the largest vineyard in the state. And so through great relationships with vineyards like that, we've been able to get to the point now where we are, um, we're back to 100% Texas as a winery. So that kind of just tells you where our heart has always been there. It's just a matter of having the supply to be able to do that. But we also have a very unique perspective in that because we understand the wholesale market and the direct-to-consumer market. Um, and so ever since the beginning of the label issue has been coming out, you know, I think that our goal, my goal has been to plot a course that both brings recognition to Texas wine, but also is a reasonable solution that does not put a burden on the vineyards or on the wineries or, or that discourages a, a wineries from being able to continue to engage 
and uh, buy fruit from Texas vineyards. Because ultimately, if we want to continue to grow, that relationship has to be strong between wineries and vineyards. So and that, is, that was 100% our intent uh, as we went into the first few sessions of that. Unfortunately, um, there was not a whole lot of uh, appetite for compromise uh, at the time. But I feel like that what has been able to uh, been accomplished uh, during this during this last session, um, you know, is more in line with where we need to go. I personally am, am very much of a of the mindset, just in, in life in general, that uh, most of the time regulation doesn't fix all problems. Um, that it's more, you know, we have to create good marketing programs because I mean, our greatest, the two greatest challenges to Texas wine currently. Uh, in my personal opinion, is the element of being able to market and sell in, 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 on a large scale in terms of having Texas customers um, buy more Texas wine and have a larger presence of Texas wine in the market. And number two is, of course, the, the major challenges that we're facing in the vineyard with herbicide drift. I think that those are the two biggest issues we face. So... I think we've got to solve some of the other challenges uh, before we get too excited about um, regulating ourselves and limiting our growth. So that was, that was kind of uh, some of the approach. But you know, the the, the, the law that was put into place um, during this session was specifically looking at the AVAs, and which this is something that I have believed in a long time. You know, Texas as a whole AVA. Um, still falls under uh, federal regulation and gives some flexibility for, for wineries to operate. Um, but when you look at prestigious regions throughout the world, the, the prestigious regions is when you start diving into, you know, in the United States we call AVAs, but um, looking at a more concentrated area to be able to build the prestige of that particular area. So I feel like like, you know, the Texas Hill Country obviously has a great name, name brand recognition. The High Plains is, of course, well known. But you've also got other regions that are, that are, that are both in place currently that are growing. And I, I believe that Texas will probably within the next 10 years start seeing a significant growth of the number of AVAs in the state. Um, I know that we have currently been looking at some AVA growth uh, in the southeast side because there's no AVAs currently in the Gulf region. Um, and as we go down that path, I think that that's really where the focus needs to be to make sure that when we're putting our best foot forward, that if we're going to focus on something, let's do that. But at the same time, that helps to accomplish not hurting our, our vineyards by discouraging wineries from buying fruit from them. On this infographic that I have that has a 2018 data, it says that you've got 750 acres farmed with 16 grape growers statewide. And just before we hit record, you were saying that you just finished your final press of the season. What a crazy season it's been. Um, maybe some of the sources that you expected to come in had, um, you know, hail damage, freeze damage, who knows what. Um, but I just wonder what percentage of your grapes approximately comes from the high plains. Does it mirror what we see as a state, like 75, 80% come from the high plains or, and when you think about future vineyard areas, um, you mentioned some that are outside of the high plains, possibly because of herbicide drift, but where do you see the future, um, vineyards that you're going to be looking to, to, to finish out your portfolio? 
So over time, our mix of regions has changed. Um, we used to source a lot more from Texoma, for example, which I do feel like there are some really great vineyards coming uh, into recognition from North Texas. And that's something that we, we are looking at potentially investing further in. Um, the High Plains in our portfolio this year probably made up close to 92% of the fruit that we brought in. So we are, at this point, we are very heavily invested uh, in the High Plains. Most of the Gulf got absolutely obliterated this year. So almost all, like we, I think we harvested uh, about 40 pounds of, of Blanc de Bois. <laughs> so, I mean, it, a lot of those vineyards um, really got hurt, so our, our Gulf region harvest was, was short, except for the estate. The Lenoir that we pulled off of the estate was actually a great crop this year. Um, and of course, you know, the Hill Country, uh, we, we do have a small vineyard there, and we do work with vineyards in the Hill Country. So normally, I would say uh, on a normal year, you're looking at probably 5 5%, 10% from the Hill Country. Um, and then, you know, we, we, from time to time, we'll source from out, out west and Davis Mountains or whatever, you know. So, so we, we try to keep our eyes open and constantly are talking to growers about, you know, what's available. And this year, that was actually, that was a big piece of our strategy because when we started looking at, as soon as we started seeing, uh, you know, negative weather effects from the deep freeze and from the, the, the hail and the, the post-bud break freeze, uh, we were, were talking to growers that entire time to come up with okay, how do we replace some of those so some of those losses? Because as a on by acre average, I would say we were down about fifty percent, but we actually ended up from last year. Um, we actually ended up about almost fifteen percent up from last year because of all the new acres that we brought on board. That's exciting. Yes. Uh, I'm going to turn to a little bit more fun topic than than the crazy weather. We've talked a little bit about how events really draw people into your different locations and, and help people be able to sample the wine and, and have some fun at Messina Hall. So I'm going to ask you, Karen, what is your favorite event that Messina Hall uh, does, maybe an annual event? And then I'm going to kick it over to Paul, and I'd like to know what... What memory do you have of growing up at the winery um, around a specific event or time of year that, that you want to share? So <clears throat> I would say um, in terms of my favorite event, so we've already talked about uh, my loves, which are wine and food, um, family too, of course, but wine and food if we're getting functional about it. And so uh, we do uh, a lot of uh, wine pairing events at the winery all throughout the year, but we have three really big wine releases um, that happen um, in the spring. We have one in the summer and then we have one that happens in November. So it, we have our spring release that happens in conjunction with our Wine and Roses Festival. We have our grand finale, which happens at the end of our Harvest Festival in um, August. And then we have our wine premiere, which happens in November. And so those three big dinners are um, my favorites because we create a custom um, five course menu. We have um, brand new release it, released wines that will come out and debut those at, at those events in that night. 
So we have like two wines that'll happen during reception and we'll usually have at least five, sometimes six, if we get excited about certain things that then happen during the dinner. So you have seven or eight, sometimes nine new wines that are being debuted that evening. And then each one of them um, we're really painstakingly pairing um, to make sure that we're really showcasing the wines and, uh, you know, their unique features. And we get a chance to tell a whole room of people um, all about how it is that it was grown and where it came from and about the growers and different things that happened during the year um, and how we took care of those wines and things. And then we get to enjoy. So we, we dress up, we get a chance to have a really awesome dinner together um, and get a chance to really celebrate that new vintage and, and where it's evolving to. So um, those are my favorite. We I, I get to help plan the menu and we do menu tastings beforehand to make sure that everything's matching up perfectly. Um, and it's always great to be able to see some of our um, you know, favorite and most uh, enthusiastic uh, Messina Hof wine lovers and, and members uh, come out for those types of events. Your VIPs really do feel like part of the family. And I know that that's your goal. And it seems like that they really help carry your message. This isn't a very Absolutely. fair question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, I read that when you came to Texas for the first time to meet Paul's family, that you said, wow, Messina Hof is really big and Texas <laughs> is really hot. <laughs> and, you know, it's still October and it's, I'm in Dallas today and it's still pretty hot. So I'll just ask you, what is your favorite um, Messina Hof wine for hot weather? Oh, for hot weather. Well, I I have officially now 11 years into being in Texas, I have gotten sort of used to the heat. Um, I'm originally from Pennsylvania and we grew up, grew up outside of Philadelphia. And, um, and so with us living in Virginia and North Carolina, uh, when Paul was in the Marine Corps, I got a chance to kind of like acclimate to uh, the extreme level of uh, humidity. Though I will say Pennsylvania does have some humidity, but it's nothing like Texas. Um, and so I've gotten sort of used to it now, um, but now our kids are doing sports, soccer, and baseball, and I find myself outside all the time uh, during the summer months. And so I, I actually had this conversation with Paul I think a couple of days ago saying, at what point do we actually get fall here? And he laughed again and said, you know better. It's like four hours in November kind of thing. So mm-hmm. um, for me personally, I love white wines um, year round. They're kind of the first thing that I always am drawn to on a menu. Um, I love crisp acidity. I love beautiful, elegant dry whites. Um, and so um, those would be the first things that I go to, though I will say with Texas cuisine, there seems to always be a lot going on on every plate. So we have things like spicy dishes and we have grilled dishes and all. we have lots of things that we put into each and every um, thing that we put on the table. And so I would say probably my favorite wine during the summertime or I guess all the time here in Texas would be our private reserve Gewürztraminer. Um, we, it's kind of an off dry, so it's super flexible with all sorts of different cuisine. It's still got really beautiful acidity to it. Um, Gewürztraminer is highly aromatic and, uh, Texas heat really makes it even more aromatic. And so I always love the smell. It always makes me happy and I smile every time I see it. So that would be probably my, my go-to good by itself, but great with food. Sounds good. All right, Paul, what do you think about um, Messina Hoff events that you may remember from childhood? Hopefully you remember them fondly. <laughs> yes. No, I think, interestingly, uh, a few things that jump out to me in answering that question, I, I would say, once again, kind of giving a two-sided answer. One of the things that, having been doing this now for being back for 11 years, 
my parents uh, spent a lot of time on the road and doing events throughout the state in you know trying to teach people about Texas wine and 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 really building a supportive network of people that went out not just supported Messina but all Texas wineries um, and remembering back on, on at those at those events that has always been a big deal to me uh, has always been very special um, just knowing even in, even in the market that we live in today where there is a lot more support for Texas wine than there was back then uh, just knowing those people that have really been the crusaders for Texas wine um, and uh, have stood up for the industry for the last 25 years. I, I think that's a huge deal. So that's kind of on the on the outside of your question. Uh, on the on the inside of that question, in terms of what events uh, were most meaningful to me, you know, every year we do a harvest festival at the estate, and that has been happening since uh, I mean, pretty much 1981. <laughs> um, and that tradition started because when my parents planted the vineyard. They, the first year that they harvested, they had a group of international students from Texas A&M come out and ask to participate because the tradition back in Europe is very much a community-driven time to, to pick the grapes. It's very family. It's very community. Um, and it sparked an idea to be able to continue that concept here at the estate to allow for people to participate in the harvest because at that time, even on the West Coast, uh, it was very, like, you didn't involve people with harvest. Like, that was behind the curtain, don't worry about that, just drink the wine once it gets in the bottle. That mentality of being able to let people see the process is always, it's, it's been rewarding. It was rewarding when I was a child to watch that process happen, to let people stomp the grapes. And, of course, there's tons of pictures of me stomping grapes when I was, you know, like two and five and every year. Um, but even today, we still do the festival, and, and it is amazing to be able to engage with people and and watch that spark. You know, when they when they learn more about the winemaking process and they get more interested in it, and and you know, fall in love with wine at a, at a deeper level. I, I think it's, it's it's a very cool time of year. Of course, as winemaker, that's your busiest time of year, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Well, for you know, we are fortunate though that you know the huge volume. Uh, the estate, we normally are 100% picked by the third week in August, and our heavy, heavy volume from the high plains doesn't normally start hitting us until about that same time. So I do have a little bit of breathing room at the beginning of August. That's good. I'm glad that you mentioned how much traveling your parents did with you in tow. Um, I, I love some of the stories in this book, uh, Family, Tradition, and Romance, the Messina Hoff story. And I was intrigued by one in particular. It was kind of like Messina Hoff's own judgment of Paris. But you guys went to Bordeaux and sat down for a dinner and had, um, I believe it was wines from different places in Texas, and then kind of put them up against these different uh, Bordeaux wines. And, and Texas did quite well. So it's funny. We know about the judgment in Paris with the California wines, but there's been some interesting uh things going on like that with our own state as well. Well, and then, you know, that, that kind of goes in line with what I was talking about Crusaders, you know, uh, for Texas wine. Um, um, Dr. McEachern, who was at A&M, was really the motivator behind that trip and got A&M on board, and it was, it was really an A&M trip, and it was to help both 
It, 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 there, was, there was a joint purpose, obviously. Like, number one, it was a, a cool opportunity to see a, a, a mature wine region and learn. Um, but it was also introducing, you know, French wine makers to Texas wine, kind of beginning that conversation even back then. That was, I believe that was in the early 90s or something like that, uh, mid-90s. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Texas wines did tremendously well in brown bag tasting. My, my dad tells a, a funny story, um, I think it may be mentioned in the book, but um, where the chateau owner that we were in the chateau that was doing the dinner, uh, his wine was against our wine. And he stood up and gave a speech about how it was obviously his wine and, and you know, that French wine is, is incredible. And, that, you know, it was, it was nice to be able to sit down with a new region, but, you know, no, you're not gonna not gonna win, and then our wine beat his wine. That was that was rather humorous that he just gave a speech about our wine. <laughs> so, you've mentioned A and M a couple of times, and on my last podcast, I mentioned that a podcast listener had snapped a photo at the the Brian H E B of a wine that looks like it's an A and M wine. It has a 12 on the front, and it's kind of maroon and white, and says something about integrity and loyalty and and so forth, but it's actually a Spanish Rioja. But I, I do know that there are some <laughs> wines associated with A&M that Messina Hoff makes. So mm-hmm. um, maybe now would be a good time to kind of talk about uh, the different labels that operate under Messina Hoff. I know you introduced a new one maybe a year or so ago with the Bonarigo family wines. So, you know, our portfolio is very complicated. And part of the reason why is because, um, well, I like to joke that it's because we have no self-control. And so every time a new variety comes out, we make something. Um, but it's also because we look at uh, ways to partner with, with other organizations. So the, the ones you're specifically referring to is we have a partnership with the Association of Former Students. So my mom graduated Texas A&M um, in actually one of the first uh, female classes that was allowed to graduate from Texas A&M and so she has a deep connection uh, with that group and she also is is um, very involved with Women Former Student Network here and so that's a special connection so that label is specific to the Former Student um, Network uh, it is not A&M direct so like when you see an A&M label actually many times it's actually not even with AM, it's with the licensing agency that has that sells their license so i was not aware of the rioja but i have heard of a couple california wines that have bought that the the right to license that texas AM symbol and there has been a few debates around the dinner table about the uh, how, how much that's desired or not but you know obviously we would love to see texas wine and everything that has a texas AM uh anywhere on it but hey you know, we're, we're just happy to have that partnership. We also have a partnership with the uh, National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg. That's a great partnership. And in fact, so General Hagee is the president of the Nimitz Foundation there. And he was the commandant of the Marine Corps whenever I first went into the Marine Corps. So there was a personal connection that really got that started. And a portion of the proceeds for both of those programs goes back to their organization. Um, so that's meant to help them to build awareness. And we are looking at you know, continuing to grow those particular programs. But, and you mentioned the Bonarigo family wine. So that's an example of a, a, a tier of our, of our portfolio that we were looking at what varieties, first of all, grow well in Texas. And, and there's, there's many. And that's one of the things that I feel like a lot of people are getting on board with now, but maybe like seven years ago, maybe not so much. 
there was a lot of talk about, hey, let's 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 limit ourselves down to three varieties in the state. And I've always said, please stop. Like Texas is bigger than France. We can produce incredible quality. It just is where, right? You got to figure out what's the best vineyard sites. What regions can specialize in 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 those different varieties? I think we could grow almost any variety in the world. Uh, well, somewhere. So, um, as we looked at uh, what varieties that we wanted to showcase, we looked back at, okay, the Bonarigo name, you know, although we're very involved and everything like that, the Messina Hop brand, you know, we haven't really done something that's super Bonarigo centric and giving honor to that Messina Hop or that uh, Italian heritage. But we work with a lot of Italian varieties in there. They grow great. They make great quality wine. Our Sangiovese has, has performed great uh, in, in, in national competition. Our Sagrantino, you know, which we're the pioneers of Sagrantino in, in the U.S., really. Um, that has performed tremendously well. So um, why not? Let's do something. Let's do a brand that is specific Italian varietals. So we launched the Red, Bonarigo Family Red, uh, the Reserve. And, and that one is a blend of Sagrantino, Primitivo, and Sangiovese. Um, and then the white was a blend of Trebbiano and Pinot Grigio, which are also two varieties that uh, are very solid within our portfolio. So that first year was, you know, we were kind of dipping our toe in the water to see, hey, is this going to be something that's got legs? And, and it actually sold out incredibly quickly. And so... Oh, I actually wasn't ready for it yet. So uh, that is a program that we're going to continue to build upon. The, both wines are made in a way that's meant to be very um, food friendly. So like, for example, uh, the red, Sagrantino can be a very dominant flavor, very strong tannins. Um, but I intentionally do a lower, a shorter maceration time and... Um, really focus on softening the wine to make it very approachable, very elegant. So normally when I describe that Bonrigo family uh, red, I, I like to say it's, it's big but elegant at the same time. And the same thing with the Pinot Grigio and Trebbiano blends. It's meant to be very complex and also uh, very easy to drink. Nice. I want to hear more about pioneering Sagrantino in Texas. Tell me where does it grow? And you mentioned a little bit about winemaking, but and tell me more about, about that grape because it may be a little less familiar to people. Right. And that's a perfect example. Actually, I use that variety as an example many times when they sit, when people ask why it is that we have you know, we have multiple multiple locations in different regions. Sagrantino is an example of a grape that if you walk into a grocery store and somebody was to try to sell you a Sagrantino, most of the time people have never heard of it before. Um, but once they try it, they're like, wow, that's amazing. So in a tasting room, that's a lot easier to let them try it and, and have them fall in love with it. So um, the, the story really starts, so my parents were traveling in Umbria, uh, in Italy, um, and went to uh, Montefalco and experienced Sagrantino de Montefalco in multiple different places and really fell in love with the variety. And when they came back to Texas, uh, we started looking in all the nurseries throughout the, the U.S. to try to find if anybody had available stock so that we could do a trial vineyard. Um, and at the time, all the nurseries said, no, we haven't been able to get any stock of it yet. Um, and very fortunately, about four months later, one of the nurseries said, hey, we had what we thought was Primitivo, 
but when we did the DNA testing, it actually turned out to be Segrantino, how much would you like? And we said, we'd like every vine that you have available. And so we bought everything. And we bought everything that they had for like four years. And so we planted it. At this point, it's in six vineyards. Um, we planted it at the estate here in Bryan. That was actually the first planting. Um, we planted it in the High Plains and Young Family Vineyards, and as well as Leopard uh, Family Vineyards. And now it's in Leigh Hay. It's also in Gilmore and a few other ones as well. And I know, and I know that there has been some, some other plantings outside of ours in the state, um, but we were the first to really um, pioneer and produce Segrantino. And uh, even if you look at the West Coast, there are a few wineries that have now, that do now have it, but we by far produce way more Segrantino than they do. Um, and we have had a lot of success with it. Not only has it continued to win national awards, um, but we actually entered it into Vienna, to AWC of Vienna, and it won gold medal, actually won the best Segrantino in the competition. So The Italians were not. <laughs> so that was actually, we actually heard about that, uh, the win, right before we had gone back. So I, uh, my parents took Karen and I back over there so that we could learn about Segrantino and talk to the winemakers. Um, and my dad shared, one of the wineries that we went to, he shared the fact that we had won, and, and uh, they, they, I think they contemplated kicking us out of the winery. <laughs> so we didn't mention that anymore. Um, but, you know, the variety is, everybody that knows Segrantino knows it's extraordinarily tannic. Um, and in, in Umbria, the tradition there, of course, it used to be made as a pasito, as a dessert style wine. It's only been really the last 40 years that they've made it into the dry style that we, it's probably more known for now than, it, than even the dessert style. Um, but the, the maceration times that they do in Umbria is sometimes 30 to 90 days. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary the amount of maceration they do. And when we started approaching the production, the first couple of years we did a 30-day maceration with it. Um, but what I started experimenting with is, is doing slightly uh, less maceration time, really focusing in on, on how to maintain fruit characteristics um, to be able to be a more well-balanced wine. Because Sacratino as a fruit tastes amazing. Um, but sometimes uh, the wine can be made in a way that is extracts so heavily that you really lose a lot of that flavor. So our goal is to make a, a wine that is is a is a big body so like whenever somebody comes in and they say hey like a cabernet sauvignon i almost always say like okay we we have a great cabernet but i recommend let's try this and see what you think of it um and we've converted a lot of cab drinkers to segrantino drinkers that way but it, it's it's a great grape it grows well um the the chemistries that we come in from the vineyard it, it, it loves texas so i you know i always hesitate to put Put a flag on a variety until it's done 10 years of consistent uh, uh, growth. Um, we're coming up to that 10-year mark, so I, you know I'm, I'm still very optimistic about it. It actually, even in the hard weather that we had this year, most of the Segrantino uh, did did fairly well. So, um, so far, so good. I mean, we love it. How do you approach the oak treatment that it gets? So. I normally do a balance of new oak and um, more neutral oak barrels. Uh, so, so if I probably the best, so, so we make a couple of different segrantino. Our Paolo segrantino is meant to be that really intense oak profile. So we use new oak with that. 50-50 um, American French. 
and uh, but that's meant to be a intense oak profile, and and the tannins are there to be able to balance it out, so it, it holds up well to that. In fact, our Palo Segrantino is one of the one of my favorite wines by far. Um, on our Segrantino Reserva, which is more widely available, the goal for that is to be a little bit more delicate oak. So normally you're seeing um, oak that's more like 20% new oak. Um, and then the majority of the oak is going to be two, three years old uh, oak barrels. You mentioned winning a lot of wine awards for Sagrantino, and Messina Hoff has just won a lot of awards for its wines overall and been recognized um, by lots of different types of publications and wine awards. What awards mean the most to you? That's a hard question. <laughs> I mean, I think that Awards do two things for me. Now, number one, it is a good feedback um, source for the winemaker to know we're on the right track with these wines. So I think that um, when you look at all the competitions we enter, anytime that you win something, it's it's a it's a positive feedback that okay, we're we're on the right track. Um, but number two, which I think is actually probably the better thing, the, the more important piece is that constant, you know, goes, goes back to that point that I made, the, the, one of the two biggest challenges for Texas wine is marketing and, and sales and awards help build the prestige of Texas wine and make people, when they're at that store, pull a Texas wine rather than a California wine off the shelf or visit a Texas winery or, or engage with Texas wine. And that's really what means the most to me about those wins is that, okay, this is helping Texas wine to grow. To be to, to dive in a little bit more specifically for competitions, there's there's a lot of focus given to national competitions, as understandably there should be. You know, it's great to have success in San Francisco Chronicle or San Francisco International, um, and we do enter those and we have success there. Um, but I, I think that sometimes, and even in the Texas winery world, especially the newer wineries. Uh, they don't know maybe the whole story behind the, the Houston Rodeo and the San Antonio Rodeo. Uh, wins in that competition, of course, are very prestigious, but it's it's actually, um, those organizations are so supportive of Texas wine, and they have been for decades. And if it was not for those organizations, um, you know, it, it, I think it would be, Texas wine would not be where it is today. So they're not just important to, to enter and win, but it's important for participation and for the marketing that they provide. They are great, great organizations. Any thoughts on that, Karen? Well, it is always nice getting a saddle. So we do, at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, their international uh, wine competition, they do a phenomenal job. They pull wines from all over the world. They have a... a a great system as to how it is that they conduct the judging. Um, and you know, maybe this is cause I'm a, I'm not a Texan by birth, but the fact that they give out, you know, these really elaborate saddles to the biggest awards, um, they are pretty cool. So it's a, it's a neat mic drop moment to be able to have one of those. Um, we don't have any horses, so we just, we display them, but, um, at this point, Miss Hinojoff has now seven saddles um, from the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. And so just being able to see um, that progression and then that recognition to say, okay, the full total portfolio is really showcasing well and it's appreciated and respected by 
um, you know, Texans and, and wine professionals, that's always endearing and redeeming um, and great to be able to see. And frankly, it's really, really neat to be able to see a whole bunch of other Texas wineries also be recognized with you. So like this year, um, for example, uh, we were honored to win a big award at the rodeo, um, but so was um, Ron and Glenna Yates um, with Spicewood and um, with Yates Winery. And so we got to be there together to celebrate that moment. And that was really neat to be able to to be able to have um, that time where Texas wine was really recognized. Um, and it wasn't just one one person doing it, you know, so much of what it is that Paul's parents have done for the past 40 years is make it featured uh, that Texas wine as a whole is important to talk about. And so um, we, we get a lot of joy being able to see those moments where Texas wineries also succeed. Um, hopefully with us, we like being there too, but, um, but it is really neat to be able to, to share those victories, especially as they continue to grow and get bigger and bigger. Ron Yates actually was on the podcast and he mentioned how special it was for you guys to be in Houston together when you got to meet 50 Cent. So. Right, not just because of the 50 Cent moment. <laughs> well, and now 50 Cent has a, has a saddle. Yeah, so he just needs a horse. That's right. <laughs> it's like, what's that uh, saying? All hat, no cattle. You're, you're all saddle and no horse. I don't know. <laughs> okay. What would people be surprised to know about Messina Hoff, do you think? I, I always, I'm not, I'm not sure where Paul's going to go with this question. That's a great question, by the way. Um, I think Messinahoff, and frankly, again, a lot of Texas wineries, you have really hardworking, good-hearted families pouring their heart, soul, and passion into what it is that they're doing. And uh, Messinahoff has gotten a lot larger over its 44 year history. It's gotten a chance to be part of some really special things and win big awards and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, we're a family, we're a family business and we're, we're here all the time. We do all the things we, our hands are in everything. Our kids are involved. Um, and that's still very special and it's still the cornerstone of what it is that we're doing. So, um, you know, we get a chance to be able to share that with guests when they come in for harvest and different events that we're doing. Um, but kind of that, I just, that behind the scenes, behind the curtain, um, we want to be able to show that to anyone that comes in. And so I would just invite people don't, um, you know, don't ever look at a winery and say, Oh, I don't know. You know, I would only meet their staff or, you know, I wouldn't really see what's going on. Like we're an open book on all of those things and we love to be able to share that. And so, um, I don't know. Maybe that would be the first thing that came to mind for me. I would probably say, I think there's probably a couple different directions I could go with this question, but probably the biggest piece is, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of misunderstanding or misinformation out there. And I think when it, um, I would hope that it's not a surprise, but the fact that we are, you know, we only use Texas fruit, and that that's been a, a piece of of our heart since we started. Um, I think is important for people to know, and that we we are truly dedicated to Texas viticulture. Um, and that you know, like, like Karen mentioned, I mean, I'm I'm the only winemaker, so <laughs> you know, I'm I'm coming off of ten weeks of uh, you know of working ninety hours a week making wine. So that we are extraordinarily hands on, and and as 
you know, especially as the industry grows, a lot of times the perception on the lar larger wineries is that the the owners are a lot of times less hands-on, um, but that's just not how we're built. I mean, we're always going to be very hands-on and very engaged, um, and there's pros and cons to that, but uh, that that's just uh, who we are, and we truly believe in the Texas wine industry and that, you know, at the end of the day, I can't tell you how many times I've had an opportunity, like, where somebody wanted our wines to be present and for one reason or another it, it didn't make sense or you know we couldn't be there or something but we immediately try to hook them up with another texas wine because truly truly you know obviously if we can sell messina hop that's great but the texas wine is 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 what we want to see grow that's our that's our vision well i certainly appreciate all the hard work that your entire family has put in toward making the Texas wine industry what it is today. And I know that we're all pulling in the same direction for great things in the future. Where can people find you online, social media, etc.? Oh, that's a great question. So, um, MessinaHoff.com. Um, Hoff only has one F. We get that all the time. Um, but MessinaHoff.com, that's our website. Um, all of our information is on that. Um, we absolutely love social media, so um, we really enjoy when our customers engage with us on that. And so we're on all the platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, LinkedIn, all the things, YouTube. Actually, though Paul's dad is more of the YouTuber than we are. Um, in his retirement, he has found enjoyment in these things. And so, um, yeah, but we love being able to connect with, with anyone and everyone. And most of our handles are Messina Hoff or Messina underscore Hoff, depending on which platform that you're on. Great. Well, congratulations on finishing out your pressing. I know the work doesn't stop, but maybe it'll slow down just a hair. Yes, we're, we're going to go, uh, interestingly enough, we're going to go have a beer this afternoon and celebrate the end of harvest. So. Excellent. Well-deserved. Very yeah. well-deserved. Thank you, Paul and Karen. It was great to learn more about Messina Hoff. I have so much respect for all the hard work that is required to sustain a family business of this magnitude. And also for the tireless work that Messina Hoff has put forth to promote Texas wine across the world. Stay tuned for Demerits and Gold Stars. I've got a Fredericksburg travel tip for you today. If you haven't been in downtown Fredericksburg on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday lately, you may not even know that Main Street is absolutely bustling with activity. And as fun as that is for some folks, it can create challenges with parking and finding places to eat and getting reservations at the wineries that you want to visit. So my tip is to consider a midweek visit. Many businesses are open all week long. Lodging rates are significantly lower, maybe even half off, and there are a number of wineries that are available all week long, like Hilmi, William Chris Vineyards, Lost Straw, Bingham, Wedding Oak, and more. Several others, like Messina Hof, are closed for just one day midweek. Some of my favorite Fredericksburg restaurants are open seven days a week, too, like Tubby's and the New Hill and Vine. Even my favorite pizza spot, Prometheus Pizza, is now open seven days a week. If you need somewhere to work while you're there, you'll love the super-fast Wi-Fi speeds at Cork and Cactus, my two-king bedroom, one-bath cottage less than a mile from Main Street. Check it out at heavenlyhost.com, or just do a Google search for Cork plus Cactus. 
Now it's time for demerits and gold stars. My gold star goes out to Cast Iron Winery for a graphic that they shared on social media recently. It says, buy local. Texas wines do not get stuck on cargo ships. This is quite an important point and maybe a new marketing angle for wineries looking to encourage gift giving at the holidays. We'll just hope that wineries have all the glass bottles and other supplies that they need, which may in fact come in on cargo ships. But meanwhile, let's buy all the local Texas wine. And the demerit. This isn't so much a demerit as a whoopsie. Months ago, I was contacted and asked to contribute to an article called 10 Wines Under $20 to Pair with Barbecue This Summer. I submitted my feedback and forgot all about it until just last week. The article about summer barbecue wines finally came out on October 18th. My selection was the McPherson Cellars Tricolore Texas Red Blend. The segment reads, Texas has a fierce reputation for delicious barbecue, but did you know the Lone Star State excels at winemaking too? This blend of Cinso, Carignan, and Cunois is produced in Lubbock, Texas by winemaker Kim McPherson, who has made wine in Texas for more than 40 years. According to Shelley Wilfong, wine educator and host of the podcast This is Texas Wine, it's exactly the type of wine that will stand up to finger-licking good barbecue sauces. This wine has bright red fruit aromas, a pleasant acidity, and just enough structure to match smoked meats and complex sauces, Wilfong says. So yay for recognition for Texas wine and boo for a production delay that resulted in a story about summer barbecue wines being released in mid-October. Thank you to all my new listeners who are discovering the podcast and who are making an effort to visit my website to buy me virtual Texas wine to help support the podcast. Podcasts are always free to listen to, but they're not free to produce. If you're inclined to support this podcast, you can do that by visiting thisistexaswine.com and clicking on the support the podcast tab. I also love hearing your feedback about the podcast. Email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com to tell me what you think and how you're celebrating Texas Wine Month. And thanks to Texas Wine Lover website and Jeff Cope for helping promote the podcast. Visit TXWineLover.com to help you plan your next winery visit. Join me in two weeks for my next episode. And thanks for listening to This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all. <laughs>